This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. We're, we're continuing our series in Jeremiah. We're in chapter 32, and we're reading from verses 1 through 15. And what we find in this passage, where we're at in this passage, is the, the Babylonian army is surrounding Jerusalem in siege. People actually have already been taken away um, from God's land into exile. And we have this little holdout in, with, king, with the king Zedekiah, uh, Jeremiah is imprisoned, and here is where God speaks to Jeremiah. So listen to the word of God. Chapter 32 from Jeremiah, verses 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Zedekiah had said, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. King Zedekiah of Judah shall not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon and there he shall remain until I attend to him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Then Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed and purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of of Messiah in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence, I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Let me pray. Gracious God, we ask that you 
would send your spirit to speak your word into the depths of our hearts and our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How, how do we as, as God's people, as Jesus' disciples, how do we live into the, the broken systems that we find in our world? Um, broken family systems, school systems, broken social systems. How do we live into this brokenness? How do we move forward when we can't find our way forward, when, when we feel stuck? When, when we feel stuck like the pipes in our basement this week that clogged up and then the water backed up all over our basement floor? How do we get unstuck in our lives? One of the themes that we've been exploring over these last weeks is it's the theme of lament. And lament is actually part of the process of like how God begins to help us get unstuck in our lives through lament. Um, and we've heard stories from members in our congregation of their, their laments, their struggles of this past season. But also we've heard stories, maybe sometimes just little glimmers at times of joy and hope that have sustained people. And today we're going we're gonna to look at hope. Um, we're actually going to look at how lament becomes a springboard into hope in our lives. And not just hope as, um, not just hope as a feeling or an emotion, although hope impacts our inner lives, but hope as actions. Hope as these uh, bridges that God uses to work out his good work in our futures. We're going to look at these hope filled actions, uh, lives that are lived out, that live in many ways, risky lives lived out in hope before God and before one another. Part of the central message of this passage of Jeremiah is that God is calling us to lives that are, that are um, filled with hope-filled actions. And that's how God begins to work his healing and transformation in our lives and in the world. We live lives of hope-filled action. And so we're going to look at both lament, review lament a little bit, and hope. So, so first, with lament, um, communities of hope, they begin with lament. Lament, this, this process of uh, living out, airing out our griefs before God and before one another. Now, this doesn't mean as Christians that we're uh, perpetual pessimists. We're not poor old Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh who can only see the glass half empty and really only sees the negative side of what might be coming in the future. He only sees the worst case scenario. Um, no, Christian lament isn't pessimism. It's actually lament is it's part of the process of how God gets us unstuck in our lives, how God brings us into his future. So lament is part of this process of uh, preparing ourselves for God's good work in our lives. Now, here in this passage, we, we meet Jeremiah, and, and this has been shared um, already by people who have preached, but Jeremiah 
So I lost my page in, in the Bible. Let me find it again here. Jeremiah was called, known often as the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah, he had a tough job. He had to call out all of the sin and the brokenness and the corruption among God's people. And not just from a distance, he actually had to go before leaders who were complicit in perpetuating these unjust, sinful, broken systems. Um, and so he, he, had, he had a tough job. He, he was, this is when uh, God's people were in decline. He wasn't just prophesying the, the problems. He was actually saying, this ship is going down. Jeremiah was saying, the party's over, everyone. This whole system that you've built is crumbling. Jeremiah was, and my daughter Samantha really wanted me to say this, Jeremiah was the ultimate party pooper. Uh, he was. And Jeremiah called out all these things. He was calling out this decline that God's people were in. Um, and so here we find in, in this first section here, verses 1 um, through 5, that Zedekiah is saying, come on, Jeremiah, stop being such a downer. You're basically saying that we need to give up, surrender to the Babylonians who are surrounding Jerusalem in siege. And as I mentioned uh, before I read the passage, a lot of God's people had already been taken off into exile in Babylon. Um, and so Zedekiah is this little final holdout of trying to hold on to a sinking ship that Jeremiah is saying, this is over. This whole system is over. Um, and we find in Jeremiah that throughout the book, he uses these words um, that God needs to do this work of uprooting and tearing down, also building and planting. But first, even Jeremiah's ministry, it's going to do this uprooting and tearing down. And that's part of what he does. And that's part of what lament is in our lives. It's this uprooting and tearing down of broken systems, maybe systems we're involved in or systems that are around us. This uprooting and tearing down. I, um, I love this quote by the Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann. He says, dismantling begins in the groans. Dismantling begins in the groans. So the purpose of lament, it's, it's not just to uh, share or tell God the brokenness that we're in. It's actually part of the process that God uses to begin to uh, tear up and till up that hard ground in those systems. It starts to break those systems down in our lives. When um, I grew up in a part of Northern California that was close to the gold country. And uh, in that part of California, if you want to dig up anything, you have to often work through these layers of decomposed granite. And I remember uh, as, I think it was when I was a teenager, my parents, they, they rented this big rototiller that you push by hand. And I just remember working that rototiller through that hard dirt, those blades that are churning on the front, bumping up and down, digging up all that hard ground through all these rocks. After finishing the project, then I had to go through and it was just filled with rocks and chunks of granite. And I had to pick through those rocks and those chunks of granite and throw them out, getting that ground ready for 
those fruits and vegetables that thrive in the California sun, but not in that hard dirt. And this is what lament does in our lives. It starts to churn up those broken systems. And, and as Christians, we don't just uh, we don't just stay in that place, but we need to go through that 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 groundbreaking process that God wants us to go through. And so during this Lent season, I, I want to ask you, have you have you begun to do that work, that hard, unearthing work of lament? Maybe it's that good hard work in prayer or with a loved one that you trust, or have you journaled about your laments? Have you written them down? Have you protested about your laments? Have you made some art about your laments? This Holy Week, if you haven't done that yet, I encourage you, Holy Week is this perfect time to enter in to the brokenness, to do that good work of lament that God calls all of us to do. Again, not as an end in itself, but as this, this preparation for the good new life that God is going to bring into our life, into our world. But again, we don't stay and lament as Christians. Our job isn't just to keep tilling up and tilling up and tilling up and tilling up and digging in over and over and over again. That's that's not the final end of lament. Lament is that, again, it's that process of tilling up and breaking up those tough, um, just pervasive systems in our lives. Lament is preparing the soil. Lament is preparing the soil for actions of hope. First, we lament, and then as we begin to identify those broken places, then we begin to see what, what's God's alternative to that broken system that I've been involved in, that broken relationship? What's God's good alternative that I can begin to live into? And this isn't just making everything well ourselves. Uh, Hope-filled action, they're like these seeds that we plant in the ground that has been tilled through lament. Lament tills the ground. Hope-filled actions are these, these little seeds that we plant. And God sends his rain and sun to grow that seed into a beautiful plant. So we, we start with lament, and then we move to these hope-filled actions. And the, these hope-filled actions, there's, there's, there's really, there's three qualities to this type of hope lived out. I, I love this, this quote that I included in the bulletin at the top by Eugene Peterson. Hope is buying in to what we believe. Hope is buying in to what we believe. Again, it's not just an emotion, something inside us, although it is that too. It's actually buying in. It's, it's putting our money down on what we believe, literally and figuratively. These hope-filled actions, they, they, they have three qualities. They show radical trust in God. Hope-filled actions, they have this radical trust. We see this with Jeremiah, who bought this field 
in hope that after the exile, somehow God would bring healing and wholeness and restoration, that fields would be planted again and bought again. Hope-filled action, it, it has this, this radical faith and trust in God. So there's this, there's this trust in hope-filled action. Um, there's also hope-filled action. It, it embodies and, and it anticipates um, God's values, God's good world that he's promised, where love and justice and peace and holiness reign. So after we churn up all that stuff from lament, what's God's alternative way that we can begin to live into now, in the here and now, in the middle of the brokenness? So hopeful actions, they have this, um, they're filled with radical trust. They embody the values of God, of God's kingdom. And then these hope-filled actions, they also expose the brokenness around us. They expose it. They're like that light shining in the darkness. That's what hope-filled actions do. Just like Jeremiah's act of faith showed the total lack of faith of the king of Judah um, in all that he was trying to do. Hope-filled actions, they, um, they expose the brokenness around us. So what, what, what might this look like in our lives to live lives of hope-filled action now in the middle of a broken world before so-called normal returns? How do, we, how do we live this out? Remember, hope-filled actions, they're little seeds. Jeremiah, he bought a field. One good way to start is start with your laments. What are you beginning to churn up? What are those negative things you're beginning to see in your life? Maybe it's isolation and loneliness. Well, maybe a simple hope-filled action can be pursuing a friend, a friendship. One friendship. Now, hope-filled action, it's risky. It's risky. Fr pursuing friendship, there's risk involved but it's taking that step, planting that seed in hope that God will begin to work out his, uh, his love in bringing that human connection. And then we, as we begin to connect with humans, we connect with God more. COVID has, it's exacerbated this culture that we live in that's already so prone to relational disconnect. So deep, vulnerable friendships, they sort of expose that culture of relational disconnect around us. If you're living in a dysfunctional workplace that's just consuming your mind and your energies at work and at home, maybe a hope-filled action is pursuing, reaching out to that most difficult coworker in hope that God will begin to somehow work his love and his peace into that one relationship and then maybe that might permeate into the rest of the work, work culture. Or, or maybe for a long time, that one little relationship will be this little outpost of, uh, of hope in the midst of a system that just doesn't want to change. I know many people in our congregation and others have shared that one of the things this COVID season has done is it's given space and time to really begin to sink in to the pervasive 
racism on both an individual and structural level that exists in our country. Um, that it's churned up that lament that maybe was lurking under the surface for many people before. I was reading a, a book recently and it's called Faithful Friendships, Embracing Christian Diversity um, in Community. And it's written by Dana Robert, who is a, um, a professor at Boston University School of Theology. And she shares a story from a documentary that she saw um, about a man named Daryl Davis. And Daryl Davis, he's still alive. He's a, a black jazz musician um, who has started a project of developing close, intimate friendships with members of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis, when, when he was growing up, he actually spent part of his childhood in Belmont, Massachusetts. And while he was there, he joined the Cub Scouts. And one of the first experiences of explicit racism that he had is he walked in um, the Boy Scout parade and he got to hold the American flag for his troops, for his troop. And as he was, as they were parading down the street, some white people in the crowd started throwing rocks and bottles at him, just him, the only black member of the troop. That experience stayed, stayed with him as he began to grow up. And after college in 1983, he was a musician, so he joined a country music band in 1983. And through this country music band, he started to actually mingle in crowds where there were KKK members who would come and listen to their shows. And the music was a bridge and just started having some conversations with, with, with these members of, of the KKK. And as he began to push into some of these relationships more, um, he, he realized that there was a question that could take these relationships into a deeper level. It was a simple question. And it was, um, why do you hate me if you don't even know me? Why, why do you hate me if you don't even know me? And that question began to build these bridges into deeper relationships with these clan members. And over time, he had, he had built multiple friendships with clan members and slowly, little by little, through these friendships, clan members started, these clan members who were friends of Davis's started leaving the clan. And when they would leave, they would actually give him their pointed, their pointed hood and their robe as sort of mementos of them leaving the clan. And Davis actually has a collection of robes and hats of clan members who are who, of former clan members who are his friends now. Actually, a grand dragon, uh, Roger Kelly, became a close friend of Davis's. And Kelly, because of his friendship with Davis, also ended up leaving the clan. And then he actually asked Davis to become the godfather of his young baby daughter after he left the clan. Now, Dana Robert in her book recognizes that, uh, that these types of friendship, they don't take the place of larger structural changes that also need to take place. But as Christians, these types of relationships forged in lament and then hope-filled action are the way that God begins to bring transformation in our lives and in our world. Interestingly, this chapter that she includes this story in, it's called Mustard Seeds of Hope. 
And that's what these friendships are. They're, they're mustard seeds of hope. And that's what we're called to in our lives, is to lament, to churn up that ground, and to plant those mustard seeds of hope, not because we're going to change everything, but with anticipation, with expectation that God is going to bring that rain and sun to make um, those plants grow and thrive and flourish. As we turn and think to close, as we think about Palm Sunday, in many ways, the greatest hope-filled action in human history was Jesus' road to the cross. It was Jesus' road to the cross. These, these, um, these palm branches that we have, we can all get, if you have them, we can get them up and, and wave them again. They, they both, they, they remind us of the, the glory and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus as king. But those palm branches, they also, they paved the way to his death. They paved the way to his death, which, which remind us, reminds us that hope-filled action, uh, it, it, it takes place and is heightened in the midst of a very broken world. And as Jesus walked the road to the cross, he was exposing that brokenness around him in faith, in hope that God would vindicate his faithfulness. And so as we walk into this holy week, we also can begin to plant those, just those little mustard seeds of hope, those hope-filled actions, not alone, but really walking in step, walking in the wake of Jesus walking to his own crucifixion, and we can trust and rest in and be invigorated by his work on our behalf, and then as we follow him into this world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you call us um, to lives filled with hope in a very broken world. We ask that you would send your spirit to strengthen us, to aliven that hope, um, that, that, that hope that lives lives that to the world seem risky, but aren't risky at all because they are lived out in hope in a faithful and loving God. Give us strength as we walk forward in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move into this time of responding to God's word, this last week I was I was really laboring and thinking and even looking around my house for, is there an object or something that I can use as a symbol to show as a congregation um, how we can respond together by um, these, I, I put down bridges of hope. How can we build these bridges of hope together as a congregation? And a few days ago, I had this no duh moment, and I realized that the, the bridge of hope that is right in front of our faces is Zoom worship. Zoom worship, which Sarah just said, this might be our last one. Zoom worship is this act of radical hope, hoping that God would bring this new future. And I know Zoom worship has been a gift on the one hand to many and, and allowed different people to be part of our worship who wouldn't be able to otherwise. But I also recognize that Zoom worship 
It's been a challenge for many of us. And so I just, especially kids and adults who feel like kids, thank you for just being faithful. Zoom worship has been this bridge. We, we haven't given up on being together uh, out of hope for what God is going to bring into the future. And so all of any time we gather in worship, it's building this bridge of hope into the future that we trust God will bring. And so as we, this might be our last Zoom worship time, just a, a moment of recognition and celebration for what God has done in and through this time and what he will do as we go forward. So the bridge of hope for us as we respond is, has been Zoom worship. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.